Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. Yep, we're back for the start of a new season with lots of good stuff backed up in the podcast supply chain. First, a conversation with Janet Charzan. I am a nutritional anthropologist. I teach at the University of Pennsylvania, which is in Philadelphia. And uh, my background is in what's known as biocultural anthropology. I'm trained as both a nutritionist uh, in physical anthropology and also in social anthropology. My interest is really in how our social worlds determine what we eat, how they bring to us what we have the option of eating, and then from there how it affects our health. Janet Chazen has a new book out with her co-author, Kima Cargill. It's called Anxious Eaters, subtitled Why We Fall for Fad Diets. There's certainly no shortage of diets around, but what makes a diet a fad diet? Unlike, say, pornography, you know it when you see it, there is a generally accepted definition. For the book, we use the Pennington Biomedical Research Group definition, and um, it has seven points. Um, I'll just do them quickly. Ask the user to eliminate one or, or several food groups. It promises quick results. Uh, uses personal testimonies. Often uses certain or special foods that they claim have advantages for weight loss or health. Often recommends supplements or pills as part of the diet. They're almost always endorsed or advertised by a celebrity. And frankly, they usually sound too good to be true. And like most promises that are too good to be true, the promises of fad diets are generally not true. But that hasn't stopped millions of people trying diet after diet after diet, which alone should tell you something. Nevertheless, the average American apparently tries to embrace a fad diet four times a year, and a quarter of them give up after just two weeks. So, are Americans more susceptible to fad diets than the rest of us? <laughs> um, I, I think very possibly we are. Uh, and I think that this is because uh, socially, we're a nation uh, mostly of immigrants, of course, not entirely. And uh, many of our populations have, they've come here, they've left behind ecosystems, food systems, food rules, rituals, food cultures. So that has left people historically a little unmoored. And we also believe very strongly in self-determination and that the individual has control over the self, can control the self, their body, their health, and indeed should do so. Um, but I think it's historical as well, because the, the new world was a place of abundance. So we've had this abundance, and we've had to deal with it somehow, and that leaves us open, I think, to believing in diets um, and diet miracles. But that's interesting, because the abundance... Um, do you think humans just find it hard to not not eat when there's an abundance? I mean, it, this is this is kind of the problem. We've you know we've we've never had to deal with hyperabundance before as a society. <laughs> You've nailed it. Yeah, yeah. We are in this unprecedented uh, 
experiment right here where we have more food, more abundance. For those of us who are privileged, right, let's be very clear, we have more food than our species has ever had to deal with. And, and this is relatively recent that there's always been people in any society that had plenty of food. They were very privileged. But this privilege has, has now extended, at least calorically, to many, many, many of the people who live particularly in the global north or the west. So all of the food that we, uh, we have in front of us are foods that would have been highly desirable, um, you know, a hundred years ago, five hundred years ago, uh, fifty thousand years ago. So yes, we have unprecedented abundance and unprecedented opportunities. Let's go back to the diets for a minute. Um, you put diets into one of four categories, and, and let's start with food removal diets. I mean, all all diets kind of involve removing food, but the fad diets seem to involve removing particular specific food. So what makes a diet of a food removal diet? Well, the way we structured this by lumping them, uh, each of the different categories has some structural background where they have some rationale that defines why the diet works or why it should be followed. And of course, food removal um, is uh, it usually, it's a, as you said, a specific element of the diet should be removed or, or almost removed. It's almost always a macronutrient, but not always. And the rationale is usually buried in a medical uh, pseudoscience where perhaps a diet component that might be bad for someone with a specific physical condition ends up being universalized to be considered bad for everyone. And the rationale is if it's bad for someone, it's probably bad for everyone, mm -hmm. a little bit bad, right? Um, it then becomes a dichotomizing process that allows the adherent to abjure foods based on their perceived contents. So it's very, I, I would say, intellectually salient in some ways because it, it plays upon um, narratives that we have about um, uh, contagion in some ways. Um, Consumption is so profoundly important. Again, in a, in a wealthy uh, Western world, for those of us who are privileged, um, consumption often serves to define the self to others. What you wear, what you eat, what kind of car you drive, they all say something about who you are. And even more importantly, how successful you are. And maybe even more important than that, how you wish to be perceived about how successful you are. But one of the things you say also quite strongly is that these diets, you're kind of primed to fail. Um, you, you may wish to portray yourself as successful, but you can't even succeed in staying on the diet. Yes. Um, it's hard to stick to a fad diet. Um, if you think about a fad diet, if you think about eliminating, say, uh, carbohydrates, you're eliminating not only an essential macronutrient and something that carries in your food a lot of other nutrients that we need. And it's socially very hard to do these diets. And fad diets are more often food shifting than food reduction. Um, and it's that change of habit that make uh, sociality more difficult. It's, it's, it's very hard if you have a normal family and social life 
to stop eating socially or to have a different kind of, of social experience with food. And I, I in the book, I give a variety of uh, examples of observations of this kind of problem. But just last night, um, we went to a, a local Greek festival, and um, these are community events. There were hundreds of people there, and it's eagerly anticipated every year that people in about three different townships go to this particular Greek festival. And the lady in front of me getting her food was asking to have make sure that she didn't have rice and that she didn't have pasta and that she didn't have some of the other things that are such an important part of the food offered at the Greek festival. And, and she was cl- showing clear distress. Um, and so that that's kind of, for me, a tip-off of something that is difficult to do. Yeah. You've got another class of diets, which is sort of food addiction diets. So there... What's the difference between considering a a specific food a trigger for ill health, like maybe carbohydrates, and and being addicted? Do people say they're addicted to food, or are they addicted to a particular food? How how does that work? I think that conceptually it is very different to say that you're addicted to something, and, and that is taking on an individualized sick role. The narrative about addiction, particularly in America, is very, very strong. Um, I taught a harm reduction class for alcohol for Penn students for years. Spent a lot of time talking with people who are in recovery and have another book out on alcohol. But um, that that narrative of you're sick, uh, you change your life, you get better, you regain your uh, yourself, your identity. You often are very much more successful is such a, a, a clear and unique narrative that's very important, perhaps especially to Americans with our our focus on uh, personalized success. Um, but addiction really is is something that is individual and it's it's inside the body. And it's um, if, if you feel that you are addicted to something, then you have that addiction, and other people don't. And that's different than say a food removal diet that's often premised on the idea of if some people are gluten sensitive, therefore nobody should eat gluten. It's a very different way of, of presenting it. So to say, I have this sick role and this is my problem and, um, therefore I'm, I'm, I'm special. It's very, very powerful. And, um, it, you know, it might sound a little goofy to say that people believe this about, uh, it's usually focused on sugar and, and also white flour with the uh, food addiction groups. And, uh, you know, you might say, well, that's kind of, not nearly as serious as, say, people who are addicted to alcohol or, or other hard drugs. But um, the pain of the people who feel that they are addicted is just as real. And when you listen to them or you read the um, food addiction literature, you, you hear true distress there. And, and so we have to respect that distress. But Yeah, but it does, it does kind of tie you in knots because, on the one hand, <laughs> there's there's, there's true distress, for sure. But on the other, mm, you're, you're, you're forced to kind of conclude that but basically people think they're addicted to something and therefore we may as well treat them as if they are addicted to it. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And so that kind of gets to this question of, is food addiction real? <laughs> and... Um, 
that that is something that a lot of folks are doing research on. That's not my direct research, but uh, we both reviewed quite a lot of that. And I think there's a real um, psychologists feel quite strongly that that eating can be addictive. So the process of eating mm-hmm. is can be soothing and it can be addictive in a behavioral way, the same way that gambling is addictive. But I think that we have to be a little more cautious to say that food contents, elements, the components of food, things that might be in food, are addictive. Um, the research is ongoing on that topic. Um, some things are shown to provide certain kinds of psychological or biophysical uh, pleasures, etc., but are they truly addictive in the way that alcohol or opioids are, where that that's that there's a, a switch that's triggered? A lot of people are trying to find out now if indeed elements of food could be functioning in that way. I think a lot of food manufacturers um, <laughs> are working really hard to make their foods addictive. Absolutely. And, you know, this is what the focus really is on this highly processed food and, you know, salt, sugar, fat, again, banging those evolutionary drums of the components that were um, more difficult to find in our early Paleolithic environment um, and how to combine that where you just can't resist the, the potato chips, the crisps, because they have all of the uh, elements that... Um, that give you such intense pleasure. <laughs> you, you mentioned Paleolithic. Um, the paleo diet uh, does not focus on potato chips, as far as I'm aware. Um, <laughs> why, why? It does, though, seem to be especially beloved um, of young right-wing men. And why, why is that, do you think? Yeah, isn't it fascinating? It's it's also very scary. I think it, it it has a great deal to do with the fact that many people believe, and I will add erroneously, as I explain in nauseating detail in the book, that the paleo diet's all about meat. And meat has such important cultural meanings mm. uh, in in our uh, Western world. So it it has these connections not only with wealth and privilege but also with men and lots and lots of research has been done to show that uh, certainly here in America people think that you know women eat salads and men eat steak and so if you are what you eat um you, i might think meathead but many men think muscle and if you're a man who's very interested in um, either developing or preserving a very masculine physique, um, you're going to gravitate towards those diets that tell you that you are going to um, retain muscle or build muscle. And if you have a cultural belief that you are what you eat, then that's going to be you've got to eat meat, and therefore the paleo diet makes a lot of sense. Does it also appeal to women? Absolutely. And uh, when I talk to women who are following the paleo diet or, or some aspect of one of the multiple paleo diets, none of which we know are actually paleo diets, that's a whole other story, um, a lot of times they are interested in health and wellness. The narratives about paleo diets uh, are that it, it cures or prevents disease. It, it's in the realm of 
the preservation of health and living a natural life, um, it's going to be a sort of optimized life because the paleo diet is the optimal diet for our species because that's what we evolved to eat. So I think that one of, I mean, getting away from the, the male dominance and hegemony that, uh, and we know that the paleo diet sites are used to radicalize young men, particularly into misogyny. On the other side, to look at it as less a negative force, I think it offers um, hope for things that really scare people. I've talked to so many people who um, have been told that the paleo diet will prevent or even cure cancer. This this sounds um, like such a marvelous opportunity to to assuage that terrible fear. Okay. Well, finally, then, then your your fourth category is is clean eating. Um, so, so what makes a food or, or, or a diet, for that matter, what makes it clean? Isn't clean fun? Um, I have no idea what makes a diet clean. There's really no definition, or, or shall I say, it's just kind of wit, whooshy enough. It changes from author to author. Uh, there's a magazine called Clean Eating that has a definition that is kind of focused on organic and doesn't have chemicals. And so it's, it's very amorphous, but I think when you talk to people who say, I'm a clean eater, and I say, what does that mean to you? Um, they'll say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm avoiding chemicals in my food. And then it kind of gets down to chemicals that have been put into food. So it's, so they're worried about environmental or processing chemicals that penetrate their food and that then cause health problems because the, that food is penetrating their body. Um, but So clean can be whatever you want it to be because it's a powerful, it's a defining, divisive, and, and really dichotomizing world, word. And you can project what you want onto it so you can feel good about yourself. Yeah, but just to take a devil's advocate position for a minute, you know, clean eating sounds, if you, if you don't buy into, literally buy into all the stuff you're supposed to purchase... Um, it seems like a good idea. Less less processed food, cooking from scratch, um, maybe even eating organic. That does sound like a healthy choice. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that struck me when I was reading through the, oh God, dozens and dozens, perhaps hundreds, I think, of these books um, and diets and, and recipe books was that most of the clean eating recipes are, are pretty... Uh, they're not going to hurt you. They're often um, quite rational, quite sensible. But how are we defining clean? How is the individual, quote-unquote, clean eater defining clean? Is, is, a, is it a sustainable diet? Is it free of addictive, a, a, addictive or additive chemicals? Uh, is it produced in a manner that's supportive of people, the planet? Is it fair to workers? Is it kind to the bees? Um these are kind of process categories, and, and for me, it might be how you de- define sustainable, hopefully good for you food. But I think for a lot of people, clean is all about the internal elements or the alleged internal elements and components, uh, the chemicals. I think that the question is, well, what's in this food hurt me? Um, and that's really showing how much people fear their food. But it really comes back to this amazing choice that we talked about with this abundance that you, 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 if you have so many things you have to choose and your food becomes freighted with moral categories and categories of who the self is in relation to others, 
and you have just, you know, 50,000 food products in a grocery store, and the USDA tells you to choose wisely, right? That choice is really costly. Um, socially, it's costly psychologically. So having a, a sort of easy characterization of food, clean, simplifies your choices a lot. Right, right. Yeah, I see what you're getting at. That, that you, in, Instead of going up and down the supermarket aisle paralyzed with choice, you say, well, I can't have that, I can't have that, I can't have that. Here's something I can have. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Aside from reducing the, the, the cost of choice, what else do you think fad diets offer to their adherents? Well, they offer hope. <laughs> um, they assuage our fears. Um, and they offer self-transformation. Uh, they offer an easy fix to a complicated, thorny, multivariate problem. Um, all you have to do is avoid A or do A, and your wished-for B outcome will occur. And originally, we were going to call this book The Magic Bullet, <laughs> because most of these fad diets tell you all you have to do is this simple thing, this one simple thing or three simple things, and then you'll avoid cancer, you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, you'll be slim, you'll have a sexy partner, whatever it is. And yet, apart from all the glowing testimonials that you'll get, individual stories, which let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say all of those individual stories are true. For most people, most of the time, they don't get what the diet promises. No, I don't, I don't think they do. Um, but, you know, the, the books are so powerful and the testimonials are so powerful. And so, the, but the, the fat diets, I think, they don't, they don't necessarily work most of the time because just as they call upon these very important cultural narratives for their legitimacy, things being clean and pure and uh, natural and, and the way we're supposed to be, whatever it might be. At the same time, they almost always ask people to go against established social and cultural habits that have to do with food eating and food sharing. And, and we are a species that shares its food. It's one of the reasons we evolved. So it's really hard to uh, maintain for a long period of time unless you really have a real reason to do it. That is a, a real sickness process. You, 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 you have celiac and you know you absolutely have to avoid gluten otherwise you would be very, very ill indeed. Um, it's very hard to make those kinds of choices and changes for a long, for a long term period. What do you think people get, not out of, not out of doing the diet, but out of saying that they're following a strict diet? Well, fad diets are, I think, rarely about the food. You know, they're about health, identity, class, social performance, self-transformation. They signal uh, politics, class status, um, and they really contain and express psychological longings and anxieties. But I think particularly for Americans, they, they project the idea that you are trying to attain your best self. You are, you're engaged in that important uh, act of self-transformation, of self-improvement. And that's something that I think Americans value quite a bit. If you're not trying to self-improve, then what are you doing? Just sitting on the couch eating Cheetos, you know? 
I wonder what it was like for, for you and your co-author, Kima. I wonder what it was like for you to read all those fad diet books that you seem to have ploughed through. I mean, did it, did it drive you nuts, or, or are you empathetic to the people who follow fad diets? Definitely the latter. And yes, it also drove me nuts. Being a nutritionist and a nutritional anthropologist, talking to people and listening to what they have to say about their diet, especially if they're following specific diets, you really have to, I think, recognize that people who are adopting some of these diets are in distress. They often feel that they are um, powerless and that uh, they they are looking for assurances. They're looking for um, a way to, to, to kind of beat through this thicket of too much choice and too many tasty foods and, and too many uh, indulgences or whatever it is that they feel they... Um, are uniquely susceptible to their distress is something we have to truly respect. There's real pain. Um, as far as the originators go, the diet gurus, um, I think they're cynical. I think they're making money from fear. And I, I think it's, it's highly scripted. Usually the next diet is the last diet with a small twist and a new price tag. And the, the formula is to pump a book out every two years and to um, to have this constant marketing cycle. So I think it's it's a very well understood, very well scripted uh, manner of making money. Janet Chazen, with perhaps a key insight into all fad diets. For the dieter, it may be about reducing their anxiety and their weight, but for the guru pushing the diet, it's all about increasing their income. I'll put a link to Anxious Eaters by Janet Charzen and Kima Cargill in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. And if you visit the website, you might notice a cute little red ribbon across the top right corner. It's labelled Merch. And surprise, surprise, if you click on it, you'll go to a page where you'll be able to buy a magnificent cotton apron featuring the illustration from my series on Our Daily Bread and coincidentally increasing my income just a bit. Of course, if you don't want an apron but still want to show me a little love, there are lots of ways to do that. Ratings and reviews, wherever you get your podcasts, are very effective. Telling a friend to subscribe is even better. And there's always cash, which you can send via the form at eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. My thanks, of course, to existing supporters who make the transcripts possible. There are also lots of ways to be in touch. An email to jeremy at eatthispodcast.com or Twitter at eatpodcast or Instagram at eatthispodcast. I'd love to hear what you think about fad diets or anything else. For now, though, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast... Goodbye, and thanks for listening.